You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. What do we celebrate this weekend? The answer is we don't. We don't celebrate, we commemorate. We can celebrate other holidays, celebrate Christmas or something, but we commemorate Memorial Day. There's a reason for that, and I'm going to walk us through that. Some of you will be cooking hamburgers tomorrow and hot dogs, and it's already been alluded to by Pastor Mike. Some of you will be going to the beach or the desert or the mountains. Uh, some will be going to cemeteries and put flowers just like the, uh, a quarter of a mile from the farm I grew up in the state of Kansas. Right near there is a cemetery, and buried there is my sister and my brother. My, my mother gave birth to five children, but only three of us made it past the 19th birthday, 20th birthday. And so my brother and sister, my late wife, who passed away of cancer a number of years ago, she's buried there, along with my father and my grandparents on both sides, great-grandparents, a lot of uncles, a lot of cousins, aunts, and, and all that are buried there. And so there'll be people gathering there and placing flowers by these grave markers. But that's actually not the purpose of this weekend. Some think it's to celebrate the phenomena of our veterans. Actually, no, that's November the 11th, Veterans Day. This is Memorial Day. It's different. It is to commemorate, not celebrate, commemorate to honor all who've given their lives in military service for the freedom we enjoy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the stories, some of the stories of God's supernatural hand in moments of war as we commemorate. This is my way of commemorating the 1.35 million who have died so you can enjoy the freedom you enjoy. I want to give acknowledgement to also my friend David Barton. I referred to him a moment ago. We co-authored a book together. He's America's historian, one of the brightest guys I've known. <clears throat> and as I prepared the sermon, had it largely, I thought, prepared, I called my buddy David, and he's a genius in his stuff. And he so influenced my thinking, I threw away most of my sermon and redid it as a result of talking with him. And I said, can I borrow? I looked over a lot of your slides. You've got hundreds of slides. Can I borrow your slides? He said, no. I said, can I borrow your slides if I give you credit? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, I don't want you to give me credit. You can have them. Just use them as you want. So I'm indebted to my brother. He said, you don't have to mention my name, but this is a church that honors. This is a church that honors. Western civilization does not understand honoring. Eastern civilization does. Western civilization does not grasp the sense of honoring. This church is an aberration in that sense. It understands honoring. So I took that moment just to honor my friend David Barton, who probably called me five, six, seven times this week as I was preparing and we talked through uh, so many things with him, my special friend and brother. So today we're going to look at God's involvement providentially in times of war. <clears throat> now, some people might object to that. Now, some people are, are, are against law enforcement. Uh, some people are, are, are against uh, military figures. Uh, every, th these people are against law enforcement until they need one. Then suddenly they're for one. Uh, they're against the military until our nation needs to be defended. Then they suddenly become pro-military. A little bit late, but nonetheless, they understand the importance of the military, even ordained by God. In Exodus 15, 3, it says, Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In Isaiah 13, 3, it says, I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. If we take a look at the future, Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus' first trip to the earth, he was a servant. Next time he's coming, he's a warrior. He's a king. He's in charge. <clears throat> As we look at the battles that took place in Israel, there were times where God stepped in and supernaturally got involved in the battles on behalf of the children of Israel. Exodus 14, Pharaoh is an example. Why do we need a standing army? We need a standing army for the same reason we have three branches of government. We have the legislative, the executive, we have the judicial. Why did our government leaders, our founding fathers, put together a constitution that called for three branches of government? The reason is because of what's called harmatiology, the doctrine of sin. The nature of the human heart can be sinful. And the checks and balances was put there because of the nature of sin. It was a biblical understanding of human nature that caused our constitution to be structured the way it is. And that's why we have to have standing armies, because some nations can become very evil, and they need to be stopped. Exodus 17, Israel against the Amalekites. Joshua 16, up against Jericho. Joshua 10, 
they, with their ally Gibeon, they take on the five kings of the Amorites. And the classic war we all talk about the most is 1 Samuel 17, David versus Goliath. Now, to honor those who've died, the 1.35 million who've died on your behalf, I want to show you ways in which God was involved providentially in the wars of this nation. Now, some will criticize this, say, oh, he's just being a Christian nationalist. Watch that word, that phrase, Christian nationalist. That's the buzzword to try to put down people like you and I who are patriots. And they say, oh, what you guys do is you put the flag above the Bible. You put America above the kingdom of God. That is not true at all. If that's their definition, that's their problem. Our definition, Christian nationalist, is one who's a follower of Jesus that wants his nation to be all that was ordained by God to be. We want the nation to walk in godliness, in righteousness, in moral truth. We want the nation to repent when it needs to of its sins and walk in what is best. President Trump would get criticized continually when he would talk about America first or when he would talk about America, make America great. Well, we knew what that is. America great means America's good. America's righteousness, to the extent that she is following the ways of God, to that extent, the blessings of the Lord would be upon this nation. And their criticism of him saying, America first. Well, what country should he have put first? If you're the head of a home, you put your family first. If you're head of a country, you put your your country first. If you're head of a company, you put your company. If you're head of a school, you put your school first. Of course, that's what you should do. As was mentioned by Pastor Mike, my wife and I have had the privilege of meeting with some, a few heads of state, 10 so far, presidents, prime ministers, and kings. And three weeks ago, we were meeting with uh, a delegation of us, meeting with the president of Guatemala and with the president of their Congress there. That'd be like the Speaker of the House for us. And, and, and we, we, we affirmed, the whole group really affirmed the extent to which in governmental principles, they're following biblical principles. And by the way, Guatemala, probably of the 193 nations of the world, probably is doing the best job of that of any country I have seen. The closest to that would be Hungary and the nation of Hungary in former Eastern Europe. Remarkable principles they're following scripturally. It is astounding. And I would want every government leader to put their country first. And I would want every government leader to make their country good, which means make their country righteous and walk in the ways of scripture. So we don't have to hang our head when we talk about Christian nationalism. We're not talking about the flag above the Bible. We're talking about the flag being based upon scriptural principles. So we want the blessings of God to be upon the nation. And then there's those who will criticize us for using the phrase American exceptionalism. They say, how dare you say that? They say, are you saying that because of our vast natural resources? Well, it could be, but no. Are you saying it because of your GDP, your gross domestic product, your output? Your well, it could be, but that's not really it. Is it because of the work ethic that Americans historically have had? Well, not necessarily. Is it because of the creativity, the patents, the copyrights that's produced out of this one nation? The amount of goods produced by one nation miraculously? Most of what the world produces? Most of it's been produced right here. Well, that's all good stuff, but that's not really what we mean by American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism means there's something we did that is different than other countries. And what is that? Outside of Israel, no country has in its constitution the words that all rights come from God. That is foundational. That is American exceptionalism. We acknowledge that all rights come from God. They're given to we the people, and we temporarily loan them to our elected officials. Now, that's the nature of American exceptionalism. Today, as we walk through this, I want you to see now the, the providential hand of God in times of war in America. I'm going to start with our founding president, but before he was president, he was commander-in-chief of our armed forces for the Revolutionary War. <clears throat> Washington stood six foot two, some say six foot four, when the average height of a male at that time was five foot eight. So he towered above the countrymen, which means he was an easy shot to take out in times of war. But in one of the wars, he's up against an Indian in this particular occasion, Native American, and he, this Native American wrote these words, Washington was never born to be killed by a bullet. I had 17 fair fires at him with my rifle. And after all, I could not bring him to the ground. My friend David Barton, who I referred to earlier, wrote a book called The Bulletproof George Washington. The hand of God was upon him. 
Like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 144.1, praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. <clears throat> there was a man named Charles Coffin. He was a war correspondent during the Civil War, the most famous of the war correspondents during that time. And he wrote a book to help teachers know how to teach. There were no teachers' college back then. In fact, you could start teaching in grade schools once you had a high school diploma. That's how the teaching was different back at that particular time. Charles Coffin wrote these things. Notice that he's teaching people how to teach history. Notice that while oppressors have carried out their plans in history, there were other forces silently at work which in time undermined their plans as if a divine hand were directing the counterplan. It's not as if, it's a divine hand is directing things. And what I'm going to walk you through right now is a walk through the divine hand of God on American troops on, on this Memorial Day on American troops through the course of history. I take you back to August of 1776. It was the retreat from Long Island, New York. Retreat, it wasn't a battle, it was a retreat because the American forces were getting shellacked. There were 32,000 British forces up against 8,000 American troops and they had really suffered heavy losses. The British had been surrounded on three sides and it was a river on the left side. <clears throat> they were in a semicircle around them ready to wipe them out. George Washington, commander in chief, fighting to establish this country knew that if they fought right then, they would be wiped out totally. But if they surrendered, well, that was not an option to him. The British general, General Howe, for reasons can't be explained, delayed for two days, wiping out the last of the American forces. During that time, they're landlocked, only water, and so General Washington orders rowboats to try to get his troops across the river to see if he can save their lives. But they find out the British ships are coming up the river to take them on from that place. But then heavy rains and winds, severe, began, and the British ships were all delayed. Because the storms were so strong, Washington only partially load the boats, couldn't get very many people in each boat as they were crossing the river. But suddenly at 11 p.m., a calm came. The British would not fight at night. And at night, when he could still move his troops and the British wouldn't fight, the calm came and he started moving them across the river, fully loaded. All night they were crossing back and forth to try to get the troops out. But when the sun came up, they had not quite succeeded. Those who were left knew that they faced immediate death. Just as they were about to be killed, suddenly a dense fog came on the American encampment and the British encampment, and everything stopped, except for the Americans kept getting on the boats in the fog and moving across the river. And when the fog lifted, the British charged in to kill them. There were no Americans left. But there's even another miracle. There was a British sympathizer living nearby. They saw what was happening. They sent their servant to the British to tell them, the Americans are escaping across the river. Get here quickly and take them out. But when the servant got to the British forces, that particular part of the line was manned by Germans. They're called Hessians. They were mercenaries. That means a hired soldier. The British hired quite a few Germans, and they're called Hessians. And there they were, but they couldn't speak any English. So the servant is saying, the Americans are escaping. And there they don't know what he's saying, so they hold him overnight and won't let him go because they don't know who he is. And by the time they found out what he was actually saying, it was too late and all the Americans had escaped. <laughs> Even the scriptures are full examples of weather, supernatural involvement of weather that impacted things. Exodus chapter 9 and 10, darkness and hailstones, strong wind in Exodus 14, clouds in the wilderness, and of course the sun standing still during a battle in Joshua chapter 10. Let me take you to the Battle of Trenton. It's December the 25th. It's Christmas Day, 1776. My first pastorate that I ever had, I was in graduate school on the East Coast, first pastorate I ever had was in the city of Trenton, New Jersey, where we learned a lot about the Revolutionary War. They had tried to cross the Delaware River right there. This is Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware River. But his troops were in bad array. They, 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 lacked, they lacked boots. They lacked shoes. They had wrapped their feet as best they could in rags. The temperatures were freezing. Their feet were bleeding. Many of them froze to death. They got across the river, Delaware River, and they were coming down to about a four-hour march to get to Trenton, New Jersey, to take on the British forces there again were the German mercenaries, it was the Hessians. They got there, but the wind was severe. The ice was terrible. The rain, it was unbearable. But it worked in their favor because the Hessians, the Germans working for the British, 
all went into cover from the storm. So by the time the Americans got there, after marching all night through that horrific weather, they were able to wipe them out in 45 minutes and establish a great victory for American freedom. Along the way, they, a man heard his dogs barking, and he wondered what was going on. So Dr. John Riker got up and said, who's marching by my house is where the American forces were going to go down to a battle in Trenton. And he, the man who told him that, his name was James. He said, well, maybe I should go with you just in case there's somebody who gets injured. I can take care of that poor soul. That's his actual phrasing. So he went with them just in case there were injuries he could take care of. Sure enough, the same guy who told him what they were doing, James, was injured severely, and Dr. Riker was there and saved his life. His name was James Monroe. He became the fifth president of the United States. <clears throat> I used to live in Princeton, New Jersey. I went to Princeton Theological Seminary. My late wife uh, went to Westminster Choir College, a school of music there. We would drive through every morning and every night the battlefield of Princeton. I had no clue at that time what went on on that place? We would drive right next to Washington's Crossing. I had no idea what took place there. I had no idea the road when I would drive up to Washington's Crossing to go up to Lambertville, New Jersey to visit friends. I had no idea I was driving the very trail where these soldiers marched Christmas Day or actually through the night, Christmas night, that night, with, with feet that were bleeding and many of them dropped over because they froze to death. I had no idea of the price that had been paid. And that's why I'm telling you these stories. Because I don't want you to drive through Memorial Day and not be aware of the price that was paid. I take you to the Battle of Yorktown. George Washington refers to the intervention of God 250 times in his report of what happened there. Part of what was happening was mutiny, desertion. They had no money. They had no food. They had no armaments. They had no weapons. They were out of everything. They went to the, to the Congress for money. The Congress had no money. And Robert Morris, who was the financier, he was the superintendent of finances, who had given so much. He had been very, very, very wealthy, but he'd given so much, he couldn't find any more. And finally, George Washington said those famous four words, send for Heim Solomon. Who was Heim Solomon? He was a Jewish man. He lived in Philadelphia. He had helped support the war a great deal. And finally, Washington said, send for Heim Solomon. We have to have $20,000 or we're going to lose and America is going to lose this battle to British, Britain. They went. It was a special Jewish holiday. They were in worship. The Jews, as you know, on a holiday do not violate certain rules. But he made an exception for this crisis moment. Heim Solomon raised the money on the spot and got the $20,000. You enjoy your freedom because of the sacrificial giving of a Jew whose name you have never heard. Wow. You go to Los Angeles, look it up, Google it, you can find the Heim Solomon statue. Just Google it and you'll find a few statues, a few places. He's never been properly honored in the history. Why do I say that? Well, when it came time and the war is over, how much did he invested or raise? $650,000. You know what that is in today's world? Today's money? Nine and a half billion dollars. You know how much got paid back? None of it. He died at age 44 in poverty, penniless, no money, as did Robert Morris, who had been exceedingly wealthy, but they funded the war. These are two people whose names you've never heard, but had they not been there and done what they did, you would not enjoy the freedoms you enjoy. His name is George Bancroft. He's the father of American history. He wrote these words, that God rules in the affairs of men is certain. Now, what we're watching is the providential hand of God. That God rules in the affairs of men is as certain as any truth of physical science. Did you catch that phrasing? This is as real as any physical science research you could do. Nothing is by chance, though men in their ignorance of causes may think so. The fortunes of a nation are not under the control of blind destiny, but follow the steps by which a favoring providence, what's providence? Providence means the superintending hand of God intervening in history in our behalf. Calling our institutions into being, our, America, our nation was called into being by him, has conducted the country to its present happiness and glory. Jedediah Morris, who was he? Well, he's the father of Samuel Morris, who invented the telegraph, who invented the Morris Code. He's also the father of American geography. 
All the original classic texts of geography of this nation were written by him. The, he writes this, and what's the purpose of a historian? He said, the office of a historian is to record the progress of human affairs as directed by the providence of God to exhibit the connection of events showing how an immense series is produced as cause and effect. This is God's involvement in human affairs. And to display the character of man and God. I want to talk to you about God's providence in, a man, in the hand of a man by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said, when I left Springfield, Springfield, Illinois, where he lived, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, now he's president by this time. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and I saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. Yes, I do love Jesus. Lincoln's second inaugural address is probably the most theologically sophisticated, spiritually mature, biblically literate presidential address ever given at an inauguration. In 1863, in the middle of the war, the Civil War, things were going horrible for the Union. He called a proclamation, and it was a proclamation for a day, catch this, of humiliation Fasting and prayer. Interesting phrasing, is it not? Fasting and prayer we're used to. But this was for humili- humbling ourselves before God. Of humiliation, fasting and prayer. Both sides were claiming that God was on their side. Part of my graduate studies was done as an analysis of the oratory of the sermons, both in the North and the South. And it was amazing how Southern preachers would justify, biblically they thought, the institution, the racism of slavery. And they were convinced God was on their side. And Lincoln took a high road. He says, I'm not convinced that God's on my side, but I want to be on God's side. And so he says, I'm calling a day of fasting and prayer and humbling ourselves before him. Now I want you to see what happened in the Civil War. The hand of God on the Civil War. I want you to watch a two-minute clip. These are two very good friends of mine. I've already referred to David Barton, a special brother. But another good friend of mine, Glenn Beck. Watch these two minutes right now okay talking about um abraham lincoln the change in him gettysburg he he really um he says now now i am a christian now i get it um and i don't know how many of us can really say that i mean we could all say we're a christian or we all say you know oh i believe in god but how many of us can say no 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 after all these tragedies, I still didn't get it. Now I get it. <laughs> and he calls people to fast and pray and says, this is it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What happens? I'll show you. This is a timeline of the major battles of the Civil War. Now there's a lot of other minor battles. You got Pea Ridge, you got uh, Stones River, you got all these other battles. But let me show you as the Civil War progresses how the Union was doing. Uh, the Union won Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. They won Shiloh, and that's it. Everything else belongs to the Confederacy. Then they get over here. They win Gettysburg. They win... Wait, wait, where does, where does the thing happen? Where does the... Come back to that. Okay. Vicksburg. They win Chattanooga. Uh, they lose Spotsylvania Cold Harbor. They win Petersburg, Richmond. They win on Sherman's March. They win Atlanta. They win Mobile Bay. They win Nashville. They win Appomattox. And that's the end of the Civil War. Now, pretty clear difference. That's where he had the National Day of Fasting and Prayer, right there. That's before. That's after. Something else changed there. Did he change? Did he change generals? Did he change anything else? No, he he he. His. They went from a record of two and ten to a record of ten and two. By a day of fasting, prayer, and humbling themselves before God. Let me take you to more recent times. It's December the seventh, nineteen forty-one. Japan has just bombed Pearl Harbor. My wife's father was there in the Navy when that happened, miraculously escaped from being killed on the day like so many were killed. 
Newspaper headlines, next day, U.S. declares war on Japan. The president was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And in his State of the Union on January the 5th, 1942, I want you to listen to the language he used. I want you to listen to the reference to the Bible. I want you to listen to the theological or spiritual overtones. That this was more than just between two countries, or in this case, World War II, a lot of countries. This was a distinct spiritual battle. And listen to his language, which reveals that. Let's watch 52 seconds of this. The world is too small to provide adequate living room for both Hitler and God. In proof of that, the Nazis have now announced their plan for enforcing their new German pagan religion all over the world. The plan by which the Holy Bible and the Cross of Mercy would be displaced by Mein Kampf and the swastika and the naked sword. Listen to the language. That's the State of the Union address. The whole nation would be watching. And he's making a decision. He's calling out the Nazi as a pagan religion, which he's absolutely correct on. He's making the distinct case that we as a nation, as America, are fiercely committed to the Bible. He talks about the Bible versus Mein Kampf. What's Mein Kampf? That's the writing of Hitler. That's to destroy all the Jews and destroy about everybody else. He makes a distinct understanding of what our role is and the God whose favor we seek. And he says, this world is too small for both Hitler and God. And in the war bonds, that's how they financed the war, through war bonds. Even the war bonds of the U.S. government would have the scriptural overtones, deliver us from evil, is one. Strong, let's be strong in the strength of the Lord. And then when our boys, and at that time it was a male military, when our boys, primarily male, when they went off to war, Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued them all a Bible from the White House, January 25th, 1941, to the armed forces as commander-in-chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who served in the armed forces of the United States. Throughout the centuries, men of many faiths and diverse origins have found in the sacred book words of wisdom, counsel, and inspiration. It is a fountain of strength, and now, as always, an aid in attaining the highest aspirations of the human soul. Very sincerely, yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Then came D-Day. What was D-Day? The largest amphibious military assault of his type. Men were landing in landing craft called Higgins boats, amphibious boats, 36 men to a boat. <clears throat> Many of them had not reached their 18th birthday. How could that be? You had to be 18 to sign up. In World War II and World War I, they didn't check that. And many a 15, 16, 17-year-old lied about their age because they loved their country so much they wanted to serve their nation. So when you see the pictures of them in those amphibious landing craft, you're looking at the faces of 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. 90% of them are going to die in a few moments. As they begin to land, they, the boats released them in too deep water. Their military gear and weaponry just sunk them to the bottom and they drowned. And if they made it on the beach, as some did, the German machine guns mowed them down. A staggering amount of casualties that particular day. Paratroopers in the air, boats landing, landing craft, jeeps. D-Day was the largest amphibious invasion in military history. More than 156,000 troops. More than 7, 000, almost 7,000 ships and landing vessels. Almost 2,400 aircraft in the air all at once. And almost 1,000 gliders. It was almost like cargo vehicles bringing in airborne troops. That day, we lost a staggering number of young men. The next day, the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would go on radio and he would pray a prayer for six and a half minutes. Google it and listen to it. I'm going to play you right now less than one minute of that prayer. Listen. Uh. And so, 
In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. When that day was over, 4,000 lay dead. 9,000 were wounded and missing. My mother, as we indicated, is 100 years of age, seated here. She would remember that day as if it's yesterday. My mother was born at the end of World War I. Imagine what she has seen in her lifetime. We continued to move in the forces in France that day, and then came the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge is not a comment you make after you've eaten too many hamburgers and you're overweight. <laughs> the Battle of the Bulge is actually known as the Battle of Ardennes. It's a six-week battle. It went from December 16, 1944 to January 25, 1945. It was a brutal six weeks. Our troops had been sent to the north. We'd made a lot of progress into France. We were pushing back the Germans, and we were on what's called the Western Front of Germany. Western Front, in contrast, the Eastern Front is when Germany was going into Russia. But on the Western Front, of course, they were moving across country after country. This was in a part of Belgium, Germany, France. It was in that area. Our troops that were most exhausted were sent there, we thought, to rest a little bit. It was a mountainous area. Didn't anticipate an assault from the Germans. Thought it'd be much further south. But the Germans came in in a massive force, the largest ever of its kind, aiming right at our forces that were the most exhausted under the most difficult circumstances of fighting. The conditions were hard. They were mountainous. It was severely cold. Many froze to death. General George Patton, he was a forceful, bombastic leader. He turned in this moment, this explosive personality, turned to General James O'Neill, the Catholic chaplain, and said, do you have a prayer for weather? The rain is freezing. Many are frozen. There's eight inches of snow. There's 20 degrees temperatures average, and it drops down to minus 20 much of the time. Do you, chaplain, have a prayer for weather? The chaplain says, I'll see. And he wrote a prayer, and they printed it off. And imagine with me a half million Soldiers praying this prayer. When you're in war and you're in a foxhole, there's no atheist. You're clinging for God. Can you imagine a half million soldiers praying these words? Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate reigns with which we have to contend. Now, as they're praying this, they don't know the outcome of the war. They don't know if they're going to survive. They don't know if they're going to be alive the next day. So this is a prayer of healthy desperation for God. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee, armed with thy power. Did you catch that phrasing? There's a half million American boys praying, armed with your power that we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish thy justice among men and nations. Amen. What would happen if our current president, instead of homosexualizing and transgenderizing and putting out army recruitment videos about I had two mommies, if he would stand for biblical values the blessing of God that could come on us this day, what it would be like.
The weather continued to be terrible until December 22. The Allied forces had superior air ability, but they couldn't fly the planes in those conditions. The tanks were literally frozen to the ground and could not move. But December 22nd, warm, balmy day, their prayers had been answered. The Allied forces could fly and bring support. And the battle was so remarkable that within five months on May the 7th, the Germans surrendered. One million forces were involved. This is British, Canadians, and U.S. and other Allied forces that fought in the Battle of the Bulge. 19,000 of them died, killed in action. 47,500 47, were wounded and 23,000 were missing. The man over the entire European operations was Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight David Eisenhower was born in Denison, Texas, but moved as a young child. His family moved to Abilene, Kansas. You see the picture on the screen behind me? I see him both as soldier, as adult, and as a young boy. When he was a young boy, he developed a leg amputation. It got a, a, a leg infection, rather. That was going to have to have an amputation. The doctor came and said, we cannot save your leg. The only way we can save your life is to amputate your leg. And he said, no. The doctor said, I'll be back tomorrow to amputate your leg. He went to his older brother. He was, the, he was one of, of six brothers. And he went to his brother and said, I want you to promise me that you will not allow that doctor in the room. Because the doctors came to the home at that time, did their operation there. This was pre-anesthesia. They're going to cut off a leg. He says, do not allow them to do that. Edgar says, you're going to die if we don't amputate your leg. He says, no, promise me you will not. The doctor came back to amputate the leg. Edgar refused to let him in. The doctor was furious. He says, only a miracle can save you now. That triggered a response in the family. They went into intense prayer. And when the doctor came back the next time, he could not believe that Eisenhower was moving towards healing. Eisenhower went on to want to go to school. He wanted to go to the Naval Academy. That was his dream, to go to the Naval Academy. But he had an agreement with his brother that saved his life. I'll work the first year while you go to college. Then you work the second year while I go to college. So Dwight David Eisenhower worked the first year while his older brother went to college. By the end of that year, his brother says, can you work one more year for me so I can get at least two years in? He said, okay, I'll do that. At the end of the two years in, he went to the Naval Academy and said, I'm sorry, you've just crossed the limit. You're too old. He was heartbroken. He instead went to West Point. He graduated and went up through the ranks, and he became the leader of the largest war effort ever, the most successful in all of human history. Had he had a leg amputated, he would never have been, you get the rest of the picture. He went from there to become the president of the United States. He's the first president I ever saw as a five-year-old child. His boyhood home was about an hour from our farm where I grew up. So my parents took me one day, and we were there to see the president come to visit his boyhood home. On that second floor is where he had been protected from the doctor where the leg amputation did not occur. I remember waving my flag as a five-year-old with such joy and delight as we saw President Dwight David Eisenhower. Then on January the 20th, 1953, at his inauguration, he is the first and only president to ever pray at an inauguration. And he did it because he felt that the nation had gotten entirely too secular. I want to take you back now to January the 20th, 1953. This is the man who had overcome almost leg amputation. The man who had commanded this massive military onslaught. He was put in that position because he could work with very difficult personalities. Many of the generals were very bombastic, very difficult, very challenging. And Eisenhower was able to make them all work together. And he was always thinking outside the box militarily. Now he's the president of the United States. And as the president, his first act what does he do? He does what no other president before him had done or since 46 presidents. He prays at the inauguration. Listen to his prayer. My friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts that I deem appropriate to this moment, would you permit me the privilege of uttering a little private prayer of my own? And I ask that you bow your heads. 
Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, my associates in the, my future associates in the executive branch of government join me in beseeching that thou will make full and complete our dedication to the service of the people in this throng and their fellow citizens everywhere. Give us, we pray, the power to discern clearly right from wrong and allow all our words and actions to be governed thereby and by the laws of this land. Especially we pray that our concern shall be for all the people, regardless of station, race, or calling. May cooperation be permitted and be the mutual aim of those who, under the concepts of our Constitution, hold to differing political faiths, so that all may work for the good of our beloved country and thy glory. Amen. Yeah. <clears throat> he had defeated Adlai Stevenson in 1952 in the election, and he defeated him again. The same two ran for the presidency in 1956. I was a nine-year-old in 1956, and I remember watching the Democratic National Convention where on August the 13th, I remember the day extremely well, a governmental anointing came upon me. I didn't know what to call it for years ahead. But something came upon me, and I had literally been involved governmentally or politically watching the news every single day from that day forward, August the 13th, 1956. <clears throat> Mom and Dad took my sister and I and my younger brothers, twin brothers, and we went to Washington, D.C. in 1956 on our way to Florida. We took a way out of the way trip from Kansas there. Our first time to be there. They were building the scaffolding at that time on the east side of the Capitol. That's where the inaugurations used to be for the inauguration of, of Dwight David Eisenhower. And it impacted me as a nine-year-old as I looked at that scaffolding, realizing he was about to stand there and being sworn in as president for a second time. I would later attend the inauguration of Jimmy Carter, never voted for him, but I attended his inauguration and later attend the inaugurations for George W. Bush and for Donald Trump. Because God had spared his life, his leg, he became the great military leader. He missed the Naval Academy. It put him into West Point. Because he was in West Point, he became the general who he was. Because of being that general, he became president. And I want to list for you six things that God used him for. There are many others, but I'm only going to list six of them. The first one I've already talked about. No other president in history has ever prayed a prayer himself at his own inauguration. But on February the 7th, 1954, at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., George Dougherty from Scotland was preaching. As he preached, he told the story of his children coming home from elementary school that week, and they recited for him what they had learned, the Pledge of Allegiance. Remember, he's Scottish. So he asked them some questions about the Pledge of Allegiance. He was used to pledging allegiance to the queen or the king. And he said, well, did you say anything about the flag? Well, yes. You think about God? No. You had nothing about God? And he said, you should have said, under God. So he preached a sermon that Sunday, February the 7th, 1954. And guess who was in the audience who attended there regularly? It was Dwight David Eisenhower. And he said, you know, he's right. We should have under God in the pledge. And they started immediately legislation the next day. And by June the 14th, flag day, the words under God were added. You'll see on the screen the notes from the sermon. And we see the next one, the actual highlighted portion where that pastor, George Dougherty, preached about under God. And in 1954, it was formally added. Then in 1955, through the influence of Eisenhower, they added a chapel in the Capitol. If you visit the Capitol today, you go to the rotunda, off the side of the rotunda is a small, beautiful chapel. Why that's of interest to me, my wife and I have had the privilege of being involved in a ministry called Well Versed. Clear back in 2014, we had the privilege of, of co-sponsoring, co-starting a, a Bible study weekly worship service in the U.S. Capitol building. There had been worship services in the U.S. Capitol building from 1800 to 1869 every Sunday. Thomas Jefferson would ride his horse as president down Pennsylvania Avenue and attend those very services. They stopped in 1869. We started them at the end of July in 2014, weekly worship service on a Wednesday night in HC5, which is right un underneath. 
1956, through Eisenhower's influence and some of his friends, they added these words, in God we trust to the money that you have in your pocket right now. In 1956, they, changed, they, they established the model. Didn't change it. They established the model. In God we trust. When you hear some left, leftist liberal make the claim that E Pluribus Unum is our national model, that's a false statement. It's an important statement. It's just not our national model. Out of one, many is the Latin for that. Our national model officially is in God we trust. And then in 1953, I'm dropping back a couple years, Senator Frank Carlson, Senator Frank Carlson from Kansas, invited his good friend, Ike, they called him Ike, Dwight David Eisenhower, to a Senate prayer breakfast. They were close friends, because when Eisenhower got in the White House, he said, it's so lonely here. I have almost no friends here. And he would call Frank, said, come on over, visit with me tonight. And so they became very, very close buddies. They already were buddies. They knew each other from their Kansas days anyway. Senator Frank Carlson, senator from Kansas, took him to the Senate prayer breakfast. He was so moved, they launched the presidential prayer breakfast with all branches of government coming. And that's evolved into the national prayer breakfast, which 4,000 people attend each February, invitation only. People from all over the world come to it now. In fact, it's spread to many other countries. My wife and I have had the privilege of not only attending the national prayer breakfast, but going to those in Europe, the European prayer breakfast as well. All because of Dwight David Eisenhower realizing this country is too secular and Senator Frank Carlson agreeing with him. Who was Senator Frank Carlson? A bit of just personal trivia, if I may. He was the senator from Kansas. Before that, he was governor from Kansas. At one time, he was a state representative too. But he actually, he was a farmer four miles from our farm. Our family knew him. In fact, when I started my first job in a church as a youth pastor, Senator Frank Carlson was the one that helped me. Look on the screen right now. I'm the guy on the right side. That's me. As a, <laughs> that's me. As a college senior in my hometown, Concordia, Kansas, where Frank Carlson lived, his farm was just a couple miles from that. I went to him. I was at the Baptist church. I was a youth pastor. I said, I want to do a Billy Graham kind of crusade in the football stadium. Well, how would we do that? So we began to organize it and plan it. Now, the deacons of the Baptist church decided it couldn't be done, but I didn't know that till I found a letter from one of them just about three and four years ago. I found the letter from the time I was a college senior, mind you. But they supported me, they worked with me, we organized it, we put a Billy Graham crusade, type crusade on, brought in a special preacher, only had 5,000, 6,000 people in the whole town. Last night of the crusade, 2,000 people in the stadium with many people coming to John Jesus. In part through the wonderful influence of Senator Frank Carlson, who I've just mentioned. My goal today was to show you the providential hand of God in battles. All these things that have happened because God was there and he superintended what he did. He massaged history and he brought about his will. But it came at a high price. American Revolution, 1775 to 1783, 25,174 killed. We're not celebrating Memorial Day, we're commemorating, we're honoring. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, 620,000 killed. I'm skipping a lot of wars, smaller wars, but important wars that lost, we lost a lot of lives. I'm just going to the major ones. World War I, 1914, 1918, 116,516 killed. World War II, 1914, 1941 to 1945, 405,399 of our troops were killed. Korean War, 1950, 1953, 36,574 of our troops lost their lives. Vietnam War, 1964, 1975, 58,202 killed, some were my classmates, 1,948 still missing in action. Persian Gulf War, January and February of 1991, 382 killed. War on Terror from 2001 to the present, 7,008 killed. What's the summary of all this? 57 million have served in the military in the course of our country's history. 19 million of those veterans who've served in the military are still alive. Now let's talk about those who served in war during wartime. 45 million of our countrymen served during war. 15 million of them are still alive today. If you add up all the deaths that allowed you to have freedom, it's 1 million, 1.35 
million have lost their lives so that you can have the freedom you enjoy. You know how many that is? That's the population of San Diego. San Diego proper is about that amount. That's how many, imagine if the entire city, city proper of San Diego were suddenly gone. That's the number of people who laid down their lives for you to have what you have. So, as you go to cook your hamburgers and hot dogs, as you go to the beach or the desert or the mountains, I'm not asking you not to do that, but I am asking you to at one point say to everybody, stop. Everybody, stop. Just for a moment, stop. I want to tell you a story. And then you tell them everything you can remember from today. It may not be a lot that you can remember, but tell them a little bit of what you can remember. Make everybody stop for a moment. And then bow your heads and say, oh, thank you, providential God, loving, merciful Father. You have protected us. Thank God for everyone who's given their life on this Memorial Day weekend. That's what the weekend is for. 1.35 million. And then say, God, thank you for being involved in an inexplicable way over our nation, of performing miracles, even of weather, and giving us the possibility of this grand experiment called America. And I'd be, a, I'd be really remiss if I did not give somebody here an opportunity to receive Christ as Savior. The same God who superintends and providentially involved in a nation's history wants to be involved in your life and release the same blessing upon you. But you can't do that unless you come under the covering of Almighty God, unless you come under His care. How do you do that? By simply saying, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads right now, no one looking around, just bow your head and the quietness of your own heart say, dear Jesus, I need you, I want you. I need you to touch my life, I need you to touch my heart. I ask for forgiveness of my sin. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Become my Lord, become my, my savior. Come, come into my heart, into my life right now. I submit my life to you in the name of Jesus. And when you do that, just as a country can move under the care and mercy and providence of God, your life now shifts under that covering, that umbrella-like protection of Almighty God. For somebody here, you prayed that to receive that. Would you raise your hand right now? So I just raise your hand, kind of wave it a little bit so I can see. If you prayed that prayer, raise, raise your hand right now. Thank you, thank you. Okay, wonderful, thank you. Pastor Mike is here. He's going to tell you what to do. Father God, I pray blessing over each one of these who've heard what I've had to share, and especially over those who've raised their hands to receive Christ. May the hedge of protection be around them in their new, fresh walk. And oh God, thank you for those who laid down their lives for what we enjoy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.